Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today, Dr. Bosazan interviews Sandrine Dixon de Cleve, recognized by GreenBiz as one of the 30 most influential women across the globe driving change in the low-carbon economy. Sandrine Dixon de Cleve is not only the worthy descendant of Anne de Cleve, Henry VIII's fourth wife, but also the former director of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales's corporate leaders group and an international member in the Club of Rome. This episode was recorded at the Springtide Conference on a windy island in the Netherlands, which will be referenced several times in the dialogue. Please excuse occasional wind sounds and enjoy. So, you are such an amazing force for good in the world. Share it with our audience. What happened in your life that brought you at this stage where there's nothing else that you'd rather do but be in service of humanity? What a question. Um, well, maybe what I'll do is reflect a little bit on how we started the day today, which was uh, before I gave the keynote for this wonderful conference, Springtie, we heard a poem. And um, a poem that was delivered by a local poet who talked about the beauty of the island and the fact that nature was a gift. And then slowly turned the whole poem into the fact that this incredible nature that's been such a gift is turning into a nightmare. And um, my presentation actually this morning was very much around our moral compass and our moral responsibility and imperative to ensure that we continue to value nature as a gift and that we have a tendency as human beings to think we are the gift rather than nature itself and the planet that we live in. And our inflated egos have driven us to totally forget that actually if we don't protect and preserve and respect the planet and the planetary boundaries that we are within, we, we won't actually have a home. So I'm, I, I guess um, my path to that realization has been, first of all, based on an amazing amount of role models that I've been able to work with. But mostly, I guess, starting my life as a, as a Belgian-French immigrant in the United States and in California, where in the 70s, I grew up in an atmosphere of being told that the world was my oyster. And that even though I was a young girl and I was an immigrant, um, I could achieve anything that I wanted. And I spent a lot of time between the wonderful kind of post-60s, 70s atmosphere of California, which was peace and love and, um, and what some would call the, the hippie movement. And, and really, though, understanding as I moved between that movement, which was very much around collaboration, it was around, I mean, actually quite politically, it was around Governor Brown realizing that we had a water shortage issue because he was the governor at the time, understanding that he needed to communicate that to people. We had co cooperatives in our supermarkets, which actually informed us already in the 70s. So I remember as a, as a young child shopping with my mother and realizing that the tuna that I might be eating had killed dolphins and realizing immediately that that's not the tuna that I wanted to eat. 
So I was not because the, the tuna killed the dolphins, but the way the of course, of course. But as a child, yeah. <laughs> my thinking was, oh my God, if I eat this tuna, somehow dolphins have been killed. Not really understanding that it was the nets, it was the people, it was the fishermen, it was the practices that have actually enabled this situation to be created. So already my world was quite open as a child. And then it was further opened because I would spend every summer in Europe and spend time with my grandparents. And I guess there comes also the sense of moral responsibility because my grandparents were resistance fighters on my father's side. Um, my grandfather was in Auschwitz and Dachau for three years. And I grew up being told by them not to forget what had happened, but also incredible stories of bravery and courage of my grandparents and my great aunts and uncles who used to take their prams across the street with bombs underneath and the kids in them asking the Gestapo to help them as they crossed the street. The incredible courage of the resistance fighters and so many other human beings actually. They were Belgian. They were Belgian, yeah. yeah. And so that, that brought me an openness again. Um, an understanding also of the imperative of human beings to help others. And um, I really think that was my foundational piece. So what happened afterwards and how, how do you, I mean, you and I are members in the International Club of Rome mm. and your work enabled uh, us to invite you mm. to join this, mm. uh, this uh, amazing gathering of extraordinary people. How do you act today? What what vehicles do you use mm. to bring this message into the world and ensure that people get it and the transformation occurs? So the, the beauty of the Club of Rome is that it brings together thought leaders from all over the world. And um, although I'm, I'm incredibly honored to be a part of the Club of Rome and to be considered as a thought leader, I also consider myself as an activist and a translator. Um, my role since I moved to, to Brussels to start working in the European Commission and then from there to actually work with the European Parliament and members of politicians from across the globe on environmental issues including Al Gore um, uh, and the spectrum of incredible leaders at that time in, in the 80s. Um, from there I learned that actually it's wonderful to have thought leadership, but if you can't translate that thought leadership into action and also create a narrative that compels people to join you on the journey, then it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, you can't be a leader without a following. And I think the following is so incredibly important. So that message came back very quickly as we were transforming, actually, the European Union at the time, bringing in a body of legislation that we didn't have before. Um, I was honored enough to be part of this transformation where we moved all of our legislation in the area of air quality, in the area of soil quality, in the area of climate, in the area of industrial policy into a more sustainable way of regulating member states across the European Union. And, and being privileged enough to do that both in working for industry but also working for policymakers. And so that, that has really allowed me to see both sides. And I think that has also been incredibly transformational personally, because what I realized when I traveled the world in particular, when I was working in the energy sector and leading an energy 
consultancy firm was that people who work in the energy sector in oil and gas are not necessarily bad people. There are all kinds of leaders who believe in transformational change in Petrobras and Brazil or in other uh, BP or Shell or other companies that are working in the oil and gas sector. These were engineers who had a vision and who came out of university and felt that they could change things. The problem is that once they become entra trapped in a certain type of narrative and also feel that they cannot disassociate themselves from their jobs, from the financial well-being that it brings them, then sometimes they forget or push aside the core of their value system. And, and that for me was a real learning because we have a tendency of defining the world as demons or bad people and good people. I believe that most people are innately good and that in order to ensure that we bring out that goodness, we have to develop the right narratives and give them the right tools in order to be able to do that. Right. So this podcast talks to investors. Our audience mm -hmm. are supposed to be investors who actually take their own money or other people's money into their hands and invest it to address the grand global challenges that we mm -hmm. have, including climate, cha climate change, but also the exponential tech, biotech, and the implications there of AI and um, nuclear threats and, and others. What advice would you give investors uh, that are moving in this direction, given the regulations that we have? Because, um, you know, if you own your own money, then you could do with it what you like. And mm. this is, uh, you know, that we have gathered around our movement. But most capital is actually being regulated and uh, that impedes the um, a more integrally sustainable investment thereof. Mm. So yeah. in other words, we're looking, you know, we, we, we punish yeah. money managers if yeah. they include additional criteria to the for-profit only yeah. criteria. Yeah. Yeah. So what advice would you give us? Well, what, you know, tell us about your thinking along the, those lines and the, the work that you do. Yeah, so I'm really, I'm really happy that you've asked me that question because um, I've just been nominated to be part of the European Commission's Sustainable Finance Expert Group. And that's exactly our task. Our task is very much to look at the way in which we shift the trillions that we need to shift towards low carbon projects and infrastructure. Um, and, and so the message, which is very interesting that the European Commission has wanted to deliver, is by bringing investor, investors and also uh, the MDBs, um, the major banks, MDBs being the multilateral development banks, and, and also those of us who have worked in environmental policy and understand the targets and the challenges that we have in front of us in order to meet our low carbon goals and our sustainability goals and the SDGs, we're working together now to create the taxonomy and the criteria in order for investors to have clarity in what is actually rated as a sustainable project or an environmentally green and low carbon project. And what's been really interesting in at least the, the, the three meetings that we've had so far recently was that we have realized that all of us, 
coming across all these different communities believe that you cannot actually disassociate green investment from social investment. <coughs> so what we've decided is that we have to both look at the green criteria, but also ensure that we superimpose an understanding that whatever decisions we make in terms of our investment decisions, there will always be a layer that's a social layer that we need to take into consideration. Which is ultimately the reason why the investment turnaround the motto of the investment turnaround is the six P's, the parity, yes. equality between people, planet, mm. uh, financial prosperity, but also passion and purpose, yes. individual. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and what I found, I'm, I must say, from my own personal experience of sitting on this group, I thought, okay, I'm coming in as, as the, the greenie. I'm coming in as the one who's representing the environmental community um, and, and the sustainability community. But I have been so pleasantly surprised to see that the investment community gets this. Now, where's the difficulty? The difficulty is that on, on the green side, of course, we would like to have a blacklist. We're going to have to shift those trillions and to some degree we might have to say that some sectors need to be eliminated from investment altogether. So take out fossil, um, yep. take out some potentially um, energy intensive and manufacturing practices which are not green. On, on the industrial side, they want to have different shades of green. And so our challenge is how can we create a system that first of all does function within the finance world. We cannot recreate, totally recreate something so fast. I mean, if, if I was going to be advising on this, we'd need to completely rethink the way in which we actually move capital in the first place. We need a totally new finance system. We don't have the time for that. So we need to, at the Club of Rome, have those conversations and look at the long term. But I'm working also in the short term to see that whatever taxonomy we create will actually start to shift those trillions in the right direction, even if it might not be perfect in terms of the framework that we put together. Perfect. And how, what role does the entire exponential tech, biotech, um, artificial intelligence and the threats that come along with that play in this, those decisions, these commissions that you are being active? I, I, we personally are deeply involved because mm. we need to take charge. Mm. We, can't, uh, we can't stop them, so we better join them and influence mm. them in the right direction. Um, is that on the radar in, within this context? or I don't think it's on the radar within the sustainable finance context. I think mm -hmm. the only radar it would be on would be, for example, if we looked at the IT sector in general, and if we were looking at investment in that sector, what would be the impact of that particular sector? So what would be the impact of certain companies? And that predominantly is going to be measured in terms of emissions rather than in terms of social or other impacts. Which is, of course, a big problem because then we're separating again and we think the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. But that is a problem of metrics yeah. and measurement values exactly. and methodology and we don't currently have the metrics to really understand how to measure it. Is it a question of metrics, or which is ultimately critical, but what about the human understanding of what's actually going on? Because from my perspective, being here, People just push it away. They don't have a clue how accelerated the exponential of the exponential uh, growth mm -hmm. in the sector is. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think that, again, we have to separate things as well. I mean, I did my presentation around the moral value 
um, and, and moral responsibility that we all hold. I think the conversation around AI and, and, and exponentialism is, a, is around exactly that. It's around how are we using data, how are we looking at technology in terms of its impact on human beings and what is the moral responsibility that we all have with regard to the type of data that we are giving and the data that we are using and where is that actually going. Does that fit into the criteria of what this particular taxonomy group is Absolutely. doing? Absolutely, and I think that that would, you know, I would really encourage you to really look at that deeper because how would you make it fit? It. How would you make it? Well, fit? it's already if you uh, look at the Grand Global Challenges uh, project, you know, within this uh, movement, uh, then this is already an integrated view of addressing these issues. It's not just a moral um, issue. It's uh, which is from my perspective, the most important one. Yeah. But uh, the impact in every single area of transformation of all the industries that we have, you know, be it manufacturing, finance, mm -hmm. all the areas, government, education, mm -hmm. they are all being affected. And it's not just the moral conversation. So I would really uh, caution, um, you know. But how direction. do you measure, so the green taxonomy, so I'm trying to get my head around this yes. because I totally get the conversation mm -hmm. and we need to look at it from a systems perspective and we need to look at the relationship with the future of work and the social contracts yes. and our global responsibility. But this taxonomy is, is looking at how you invest in green products because that's the only measurement we actually have. So how within, if we were going to, for example, direct investment in some kind of AI business? Well, you know, pick one. It could be 3D printing. Right. And so, uh, the, the, or biotechnology, right. which of course is a very difficult uh, area because, you know, the sustainable aspect of that is, uh, is complicated mm -hmm. um, because people don't, uh, you know, like medical devices, you know, they are hardly sustainable, you know, bi biologically degradable. But, um, you know, it's 3D printing, for, for example, yeah. where people are going to print their own clothes at home. Mm. So that's not a, you know, a priori, that's not a moral conversation. It's just going to happen. People are going to print whatever breaks in your home. You'll have a printer and will, you will print it. So this is not a social thing. It's, not a, it's a technological thing. So we need to get at the source of the production right. you know, and influence the industry themselves to... Um, while they develop it to really take all of these aspects into consideration. It's not just a uh, sustainable conversation or a moral con It's an integrated one. So that's a, so again, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around how we do that concretely well, yeah, in terms of the criteria. I think we really need to have that conversation. We need to dig deeper. Because and, I think yeah. it's a very difficult one. And I also think the other thing that I've been pushing in this system is that we need to make it dynamic and flexible. Um, so there needs to be a constant review process because yes. we know that innovation is continuing yes. and, and technology will shift. And also, we also know that substitution often is wrong. We make mistakes. Look at what happened in Europe around it's biofuels. Absolutely. So we need to ensure that we have the openness to yes. open up the system continuously and let it evolve. And so how we do that and bring in the right technology shifts and measure exactly what those impacts are is really fundamentally important. So that's a conversation Absolutely. that we need to continue to have. Yes, and particularly I would invite you to look into those groups that have already formed themselves 
um, like Tonic and the uh, Gen, it's a funny name, uh, Gen being the Global Impact Investment Network, you know, mm -hmm. that was uh, started by the Rockefeller Foundation mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Tonic, which is the group that uh, we are also part of. That, that's, uh, and is there a reason why we've got gin and tonic? I mean, can we yes, actually have a gin and tonic at the end of this? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings in the conversation of having fun. So, yes. we, you know, because we yes. ultimately, if we want to change things, we want to have fun and yeah. be attracted toward that direction rather than uh, be fearful. And, yes. Yeah. So that's the joy, joyful part of it. It's rather cold, so um, I would like to lead the conversation now toward... Um, your personal practice comes mm. slowly to an end um, because it fits with the last subject. How do you maintain your upbeat spirit? Uh, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis to really take care of the interiority of who you are as a human being? Mm. In the face of all those challenges, how do you, what do you do to continue to take the bigger picture and keep a higher perspective, mm. a more integrated perspective mm. of the, uh, you know, the fact that we're all, you know, we've been born, we're going to die someday. And uh, maybe in this journey, there are miracles that will occur mm. that we cognitively may not be able to fathom. Mm. Um. So how do I keep grounded in all of this? Well, I mean, I think that um, there have been times when I haven't been as grounded um, and, uh, and where I really suffered, I must say, more from the power struggles, especially when I was working in the UN and um, the, the predominance to be moved by your ego rather than your heart. And I found that incredibly destructive. And in fact, it so destroyed me that I had a burnout. That was two years ago. And I must say that um, the miracle is me coming out of that burnout much stronger than I've ever been. And I think part of that was the meditation that I practiced. Um, the walking. I did a lot of walking during my burnout. And it really cleared my thoughts, getting back in connection with nature. I think another practice that has really enabled me has been to work with a few shaman um, who were deep, dear friends actually of the families, but also called upon by the Navajo Indians and who are from Marin in, in the Bay Area, but are also Belgian. And so they would come back to Belgium and they were doing seminars around shamanism, but the, the deep shamanism of the indigenous peoples in the United States. And, um, and that, that very strong need to believe that nature will actually bring you back and also the humility. Um, I try every single day to spend more time listening than speaking, to be with people and try to understand no matter where they're coming from, whether it's my pharmacist or my grocery worker, to say hello, to smile, to, and I think taking time to really connect with people is, is so fundamentally important. Um, and we were just seeing a butterfly. Yeah. <laughs> and as you know, my connection with butterflies is very strong because my mother passed also two years ago. So that's really quite... So my mother has just come by saying hello. Um, <laughs> and that's incredibly important to recognize that. 
She and I, I want to end on that. It's because the bigger picture. It's the bigger picture, and it's also the fact that I've had such an amazing career. I've met such amazing people. I have been. I sometimes I just uh, I'm just blown away. I've worked with princes and presidents and heads of the UN, and have been privileged to meet with these unbelievable people. And just before my mother passed, I. I went back to San Francisco and spent last five days with her before she passed and realized that, my God, here I thought that I had been changing the world, but actually this wonderful woman who lived in San Francisco in a small house, because of her kindness, most of it coming from very deep Buddhist practice, had totally transformed hundreds of people. People in the community, people she'd worked with, she was a teacher. We had people lining out the door wanting to say their final goodbyes. We had the most unbelievable memorial service where we couldn't keep the crowds in. And I think that for me was also transformational. It was a reminder that it doesn't matter who you are, where you are. You just have to stay grounded. And um, that's really been a reminder to me that that's just my role. I just need to be grounded to listen to others and try to do what I can to make a difference but not to inflate it because I'm just one of many people. And again, we have to remember nature is the gift, not us. Wow, thank you so much. It's been a great priv privilege to have you uh, to on the podcast thank and you. have you as a friend. Thank you. Where can people go and get more information about your work on and in, learn about who you are and maybe contact you? Um, well, you can Google me. Um, I'm, so I'm on Twitter, Sandrine Dixon de Clev, and um, that's where you'll find many of the things that I'm doing. Um, I'm on Twitter, which is um, at SDD de Clev, so it, it, it's S D D E C L E V E. Um, and um, I'm not on Facebook, and I'm not on Instagram. <laughs> And, um, and maybe I'll start doing more podcasts, but um, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To find out more about Sandrine Dixon DeClev, visit her on Twitter at SDDeClev. That's the letters S, D, and DeClev, D-E-C-L-E-V-E. To find more information on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com. 